Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Alana Redstone. She is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. She's also the faculty director and a co-founder, along with educational strategist Ellie Avishai and English literature scholar Christina LaRose of the Mill Institute, an organization designed to help educators learn how to foster productive, respectful classroom discussions that make room for a variety of viewpoints. I should tell you that the Mill Institute, formerly the Mill Center, is now part of the University of Austin a brand new institution with a stated commitment to free speech and intellectual diversity. I'll link to it in the show notes. But in this conversation, we talk less about the Mill Center itself than about some of its core values and ideas. One idea that interests me a lot is something Alana calls the certainty trap. And we talk here about how feeling absolutely sure about things can lead to trouble and may, in fact, have a lot to do with our current troubles as a society. We talk about how Alana works with her own students to challenge their assumptions and how the word truth can often throw us off course. Best of all, in the second part of the interview, we run through a couple of things that I feel certain of and that maybe I should not. I'll let you guess what those things are. And Alana introduces a concept that I found profound, actually, that feeling confident about something is perhaps a better, stronger position than feeling certain. This may change your life a little. So here's my interview with Alana Redstone. Alana Redstone, welcome to The Unspeakable. Thank you. It's so exciting to be here. You do a number of really interesting things. You're a professor of sociology at the University of Illinois. You are also one of the founders of the Mill Institute, which I want to talk with you about in a bit. But one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on the podcast is to talk about something you've studied a lot and written about a lot, and that is the concept of certainty. You coined an idea called the certainty trap. And so let's just start by telling us what it means and why you think about this so much. Yeah, I do spend an absurd amount of time thinking about certainty. And so the idea is that I think what struck me was that the connection that when we judge people or when sort of, so the space that I work in is really on sort of the most heated, most contentious topics, you know, which today in this country largely are things that touch issues like identity, fairness, equality, intent, racism, harm, freedom, things like that, things that sort of sit in that. Those things never come up on this show. Yeah, well, I figured. So this will be really new for your listeners. Yeah. You know, uncharted territory. (laughs) So in those kinds of issues. And so the idea is that the tendency to reflexively judge or demonize somebody who disagrees is always, and I don't use the word always lightly, but as far as I can see, and as far as I've been able to figure out, can always be traced to certainty in something. And so the idea is that what happens, so in that is certainty about a, it can be about a value, it can be about a belief, it can be about a principle. And so the idea is that this has two effects. One is that certainty, when we're certain about something, we stop asking questions right? And we don't even necessarily realize, this is part of why it's so insidious, is that we don't necessarily realize that we're doing it. It's not like, oh, I've intentionally taken this particular idea and taken it off the table. 
and we're not going to ask questions about it. It's almost, it's not, a lot of times I think it's not even conscious, but we, so one, so that's one part is that we stop asking questions and we, we're going to form a pretty quick opinion of anybody who does ask questions of this thing that we think is certain. Is settled law. Yeah. Yeah. It's settled. And so we'll, uh, yeah, I'll talk about that in a second. And so, and then the other thing that happens is that it gives you this is sort of follow on to that is it gives you the rationale to judge as either stupid or in some other way, a horrible person, people who disagree. And so the idea is that, and you use the word settled. So the idea is that the certainty trap is sort of driven by this thing I've called the settled question fallacy, which is again, sort of treating, and the settled question fallacy is just what it sounds like, sort of treating open questions, which pretty much encompasses everything in this space. And we could talk about outside of this space too, and treating them as though they're settled and sort of what that leads to. And so what I'm saying is by recognizing, by naming, there's enormous value in naming whatever the value belief principle is that we're certain of. So whatever that sort of core belief is, there's value in naming it. Sometimes when people name it, they'll let it go. They'll say, oh, I didn't realize that I was treating this thing as though it was you know, definitive. I had the definitive answer. And sometimes they won't. I can give you an example of that as well. But And if they don't, but I guess first what I would say is that even if they don't, even if the person doesn't let it go, there's still value in naming it. Because once it's named, you can sort of say, well, look, here's this idea that we can now put on the table. There's this thing that has a name. And even though you don't want to, you know, you, somebody may want to hold, like, I think that's the most important thing or the most important value or whatever, you don't actually have to let it go to be able to have other people sort of question it and say, well, what does that mean? And where, you know, under what conditions would that not apply? Or under what conditions does it apply? Or how should we think about that? Or what are the trade-offs of it? Because now you've named this thing. What would be an example of something that a person could name? So, I mean, so here's, so here are kind of maybe two examples. Well, okay. So here's an example. Start with one. And I'll use this example because I think that it's an example that for people in this country, there's sort of maybe not complete consensus in the sense that there's not consensus, complete consensus on anything, but sort of large agreement across the political spectrum on in this context. And so the context is as follows. So let's say that you have, you know, before I'm not, I'm certainly not an expert on Saudi Arabian history, but before 2018, before women were allowed to drive, let's imagine that you had two people who were discussing the rights of women to drive. And again, just, I don't want to get, you don't have to be an expert in this to sort of understand the example. So the idea would be, let's say you have a Saudi feminist who says, you know, I think that women should have the rights to drive. And then a conservative who's saying, you know, I don't think, you know, I don't think for, for reasons X, Y, and Z, I don't think that that should be the case. So the idea would be even as something as, as contentious as that, you can still get to the bottom of sort of what are the core principles. So for example, the feminists might say, and I would agree with this, would be something like, you know, I believe that women should have equal rights under the law. And I think they should be allowed to pursue opportunities and, and pursue their potential and et cetera, right? Whatever that argument would look like, we can imagine. And you could ask that open, now we've sort of named this thing. There's nothing that says that that person has to let that go in order to sort of put it on the table as something that we can talk about. And again, this is a little bit of an extreme example because I think it's it's in some ways easier to think about. But you know, you might ask, well, what are the other, 
what other things fall into that category that you think, you know, under this category of rights that you're thinking about, you know, are there any conditions where you could imagine it functioning differently or whatever the questions are without, without her having to let go of anything. And on the other side, you know, you could say, well, let's say that the conservative says, and I'm just making up an argument, but let's say the person says, you know, actually, I think that, that this would be the first step in of many that would lead to the decay of society. Even there, you could say, well, what do you mean by the decay of society? Like what that's a, that's a, so that's a claim that's been put on a, on the table. Like that's a statement. There's space to ask questions there. What do you mean by the decay of society? Like, what does that look like? What is, are there other things? Why do you think that this thing would lead to the decay of society? Are there other things that you think would lead to the decay of society? And uh, so that might be an extreme example, but you can do that with that kind of questioning and kind of pulling back layers. You can do it with any topic from gun control to immigration to ideas around white privilege to, you know, to equality, to inequity, you know, everything, everything else. Um, and it's just a way of sort of getting and getting to the core issues um, and communicating with people that I think has a real path forward, as long as we understand that agreement ne isn't necessarily the goal. Right? right. The goal isn't that like the goal, it's sort of or to convince the other person isn't necessarily. No, not the goal. at all. In fact, the idea with the certainty trap is that the settled question fallacy, once we f fall into it, treating the question as settled, that it leads to two other fallacies. One is the fallacy of equal knowledge, which is this assumption that if we all, particularly on contentious issues, if we all had the same information, we would all agree. And so this is actually something that. This is the this idea is something that a lot of, for example, DEI programming tends to be based on. A lot of educational programming tends to on, on contentious issues tends to be based on this idea that I'm just going to give you this information and then we're all going to sort of walk out of the room. And then, in other words, it's the information that's lacking. And once you have it, we'll all be on the same. Right. Page. If only you knew. If only yeah. if only they understood. Yeah. yeah. And I'm trying, I'm also thinking, so if we can like back up a, a second here, like something like women driving, I'm also just thinking of something. It, it's so easy for anything like this, whether it's abortion or I'm even thinking back, like in the Phyllis Schlafly era, like yeah. fighting the ERA. And it's so easy to say the Republicans are opposing abortion rights because they hate women. Yes. It's something like that. And it's amazing the number of people who really just go along with that. And I guess actually internalize the idea that a lot of Republicans fundamentally hate women. Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. And, and, and to be clear, like there's nothing in what I'm saying, and I'll give you an example on gun control. Like there's nothing in what I'm saying that says that there aren't, in your example, people who hate women, Republicans or anyone else for that matter, who actually hate women. There's everything I'm saying is totally consistent with that. What I'm saying is actually that, okay, if we were looking at a list of why someone, you know, is opposed to abortion, to go with the example that you said, one of those things, one some one item on that list might be they hate women, just sort of, you know, some deeply held sense of misogyny or or or, you know, that women are second class citizens or, or something, or, you know, whatever, that kind of those might be on the list. And then you would have, but the point is, is like, well, okay, are those the only things that are on the list? Well, you know, maybe the person, maybe it's their religious views, or maybe it's, you know, whatever the other sort of reasons are that people have. And then if you get to the point where there are other things on the list, you're then very quickly faced with the question of, 
okay, well, how do I now, all, if all I know about the person, and just to stay with that example, is that they're opposed to abortion, what kind of conclusions do I want to draw about their motives? And I mean, that's a big question. Like, given that you only observe this one thing, you observe their position, which is a position that you don't like and that you think is objectionable, and you have these unobservable, these motives that you can't see. And so what do you want to do? How do you want to, you have imperfect information, I guess, as an economist would say, like, how do you want to respond to that situation? And that's, I think, the converse, that's part of the conversation that we need to be having. I mean, it doesn't have to be, and I don't want to make it sound like it's just one side of the political spectrum. Like, here's an example where it would be on both sides. And I'm not claiming, I, in saying both sides, I, I'm not making any claim of symmetry. Um, I'm just saying that like engaging in both sidesism. No, I'm not making a claim of symmetry at all. I'm just saying it's not unique. So like if you gave an example like uh, about gun restrictions, right, restrictions on gun control, you could imagine somebody who is in favor of gun restrictions saying, well, the person who is opposed to them just doesn't care about the children who get killed in school shootings. Right. That would be one version. Right. And going the other way, you could imagine something like, you know, well, the person who is in somebody who opposes gun restrictions could say, well, you know, the person who is in favor of gun restrictions, they really just don't care about personal freedom. They don't care about the Constitution and they want to live in some sort of tyrannical nanny state. Right. Right. Like the, you can imagine it going, you can imagine these sort of caricatures being painted. And so the idea well, you don't have to imagine it. You see it every day. Right. And so that comes from certainty. I mean, ultimately, that's where it comes from. And we, we can, you know, that's we're not um, pre-programmed to stay in that kind of way of thinking. We're not. OK, well, that's encouraging. So do you teach undergraduates mostly at the University of Illinois? What, what are your students like? And I'm curious how this comes up with them and how they sort of process all of this. Oh, God, it comes up constantly. It comes up all the time. So um, I yeah, I do mostly teach undergraduates and I teach. I mean, some of what I teach is not that interesting, probably for your listeners, like introductory statistics and things like that. But I also teach a course. I teach a course called Social Problems, which I'm teaching right now. And then I also teach a course, usually in the spring, I teach a course called Bigots and Snowflakes, which has been, I've taught, I guess, four times now, um, which has been great. Um, and the social problems class is great too. So like I said, that's what I'm teaching right now. And this, these kinds of questions come up all the time, you know, and trying to get the student, trying to work with this. I mean, in that case, I have, you know, 15 weeks of the semester to sort of talk through these things, but really trying to be clear that, in fact, I was talking about this in class this morning, like that I don't have a strong feeling about what your opinion is. In fact, this morning we were talking about um, George Floyd and we were talking about um, policing. And um, again, this stuff, we talk about these things a lot. Um, I don't have a strong feeling about what your opinion is or if you change your mind. Like it, it doesn't matter to me, really, if you walk in with the same position, if you walk out with the same position that you walked in with. I'm not trying to change anyone's mind about anything. But what I do care about is how you're thinking about these things and how and and how aware you are of sort of the assumptions that you're making. And can you name them? And can you imagine that somebody might have a different set of assumptions? So can you give an example of something you've gone through with your students that would have, you know, forced them to think about things differently? 
Yeah, I can think of one. I So I'll give you two examples. One is sort of an exercise that I do with students with some regularity. And then the other one is kind of a, is an anecdote that just came up organically in class one time. So the exercise that I'll do with them sometimes is to get them to think about um, inequality and sort of what we know and what we don't know about the causes of inequality, which is certainly, it's one of the topics that I listed at the, you know, when we started, but it's also, you know, it's one of these incredibly contentious and it leads to all these other, it's associated with all kinds of other contentious topics. Um, and so one of the things that I'll ask them, and this is in the classes at the U of I, is I'll say, you know, you've all had some degree of academic success just by dint of the fact that you're sitting here in this classroom, right? Like you've, I'm sure you all know people from your hometowns who didn't go to college or didn't go to, you know, the state flagship institution or so for a lot of them, this is, you know, this is, they have, they, this is success, um, understandably that they are sitting in this, in this classroom in the, on the U of I campus. And so I'll ask them to think about what is it that you feel like contributed to your academic success? And one of the things, it, this tends to be just because of sociology, it tends to be, we're not particularly well balanced with respect to gender. Um, it's much more women than men, um, but it is very racially, racially and ethnically diverse. Um, and so I'll ask them to just think about what it is, like, what do you, to what do you attribute your success? Um, the fact that you're here today. And they'll go through things like, you know, well, you know, I studied really hard or my, you know, I went to class, I had a really inspiring teacher. I had, you know, I've had students say things like, you know, my parents would kill me if I didn't do well in school or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, whatever sort of comes to mind, you know, some of them will say things like I had a well-funded school or things like that. And so we'll talk about the difference between structural and individual causes. So we sort of together come up with this list of things that they feel from their own experience that they attribute educational success to. And so if someone doesn't mention things like you know, something like structural racism or um, something along those lines, then I'll just add it to the list. And most of them sort of acknowledge that that's something that's on the list. And then I'll say, you know, can you rank order these in order, you know, in rank order them in terms of how much you think they contribute to your educational success. Like this is the most important, this is the second most important, et cetera. And they can't do it. And, you know, and I, I couldn't, frankly, I wouldn't be able to do it either. Um, but sort of getting them thinking about, well, if we can't rank order them, how should we think about the solutions to this problem? How should we talk about it with other people? What does it mean if we tell people that if you focus on the individual characteristics that it's a manifestation of racism or, you know, what does that mean? What is, how do we, you know, what can we expect in terms of moving the needle on this problem that people rightly care about? So that, that kind of thing, like getting them to sort of walk, I don't have the answers, but just trying to think through carefully, what do we know? What do we not know? In this case about the causes of, and you, what you would get to is this, you know, potential remedies for inequality, but even questions like, okay, I mean, I've done exercises with them where they read, you know, like, I don't know if you've read Harrison Bergeron, um, this Kurt Vonnegut uh, story, short story about sort of socially engineered equality and what that looks like and sort of, well, if you don't want that, right, because most people read that story and they're like, well, that's clearly a dystopia I don't want to live in. So where do you want to fall? Like, what do you, what does success look like? So all of those questions that they, that they are not 
familiar or used to familiar with or used to thinking about, it broadens their thinking in a way that is not, it's not me telling them what to think. I'm curious, when you ask them something like, to what do you attribute your success? Do they tend to err more on the side of, I worked hard and I, or I went to a good school or my parents were strict rather than just saying, well, I had white privilege or structural, a structural advantage or something like that. I've never heard anyone say that. I've never, I've like, I've probably done that exercise. I don't know, six, seven, eight times with different groups. I've never had anyone say that. In fact, I'm usually the one who brings it up just because I'll, or I'll, or sometimes what I'll do is I'll bring up a newspaper headline that sort of basically makes that claim about educational disparities and just say, okay, you know, and again, like, I'm not trying to convince anyone that this is not real or that it's not a thing. Like, I'm not trying to, that's not where I'm coming from at all. I'm just saying like, what do we know? How do we want to shape this conversation on an issue that a lot of people care about? And so that's very different than trying to get into an argument, which I wouldn't do anyway about like, like I have the answers somehow about how these things rank or whatever, but I've never actually had anyone say, you know, white privilege, or I'm usually the one who has to say, I don't say white privilege, but I would say, you know, what about structural causes or something like that? Yeah. So, oh, so we, I think this is such a testament to the bubbles that we all live in, because I think a lot of people, probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast have the idea that everybody is so steeped in this kind of vocabulary that pretty much any given college freshman or sophomore would have internalized kind of intersectional theory and, you know, talk, talking about privilege. You know, it's an interesting question. Like I'd have to run the experiment on another semester, but like what you would want to do is actually something like ask them, what do you think drives educational disparities? Like ask them that question and you might get, I haven't done this, but, but I can imagine that you might get those kinds of answers. And then it's a different question to say, what made you successful? Like, how do you think about that? And so actually it would be interesting. To, I've never done a comparison of those answers, but I, I'm guessing they'd be different. Are there things that you feel certain of that you have to check yourself? Like, what would you say like the top one or two things are? Um, this is the great paradox, right? I feel certain that I know nothing. Um <laughs> I feel certain of uncertainty. Yeah, but that's just that's the one thing about getting older, you I guess we yeah. you realize. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I have had people I mean, all kidding aside, I have had people say that to me, like, oh, you're just, you know, you're just certain that this is the and and I guess so I guess I am, you know, guilty as charged. Other than that, I don't know. Like I think that if anything, I just see that I just I don't have a lot of answers. And I think that. I just think that the world is, I mean, it sounds silly, but like, I just think the world is complicated. When I was, um, I'll just, just quickly, like when I was in my mid twenties, I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Togo in West Africa. And which was, you know, people have get all kinds of different things out of Peace Corps and have different experiences and go for different reasons. It's almost always, I think, life-changing in some way, but not always in the way that you might think when you go in. And so for me, I think one of the things one, I had done a lot of traveling in my, in my twenties and this was sort of part of that. And one of the things that it changed for me was sort of, you know, you go in as an idealistic young person who wants to have a real impact on the world. Like it's hard to imagine what you could do that would be more unambiguously good than something called the Peace Corps. And it, yet it, and I don't actually, that's still, I haven't been 
I'm not saying I don't think that's true anymore, but it did raise questions for me being there. Things like, you know, well, are we, how should we think, are there costs to volunteers being here? Are there, you know, are we, are we fostering dependency? Are we propping up a corrupt government? Are we, how should we think about that? Are the benefits worth it anyway? Who should decide? Like how all of that stuff, it just suddenly wasn't, and it, the answer may be it's still worth it, but it just wasn't as clear to me as it was when I first thought. And so it's some, in some ways I've just carried that with me with everything. I don't know if that makes sense. I wonder too, well, and I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about how so much of the public discourse is, takes place online on social media and social media tends to skew younger. Yeah. And when you're younger, you're just so much more certain. I mean, I, I think about like the stuff that I thought in my twenties Yeah. and it's, I cringe. Yeah. You know, and it's just because you don't have the life experience. You don't go through, you just, the older you get, you see that people are complicated and that good people can do bad things. And, you know, here, like an example, and I wrote about this a little bit in my book, like the idea that women can be just as abusive as men, or at least emotionally abusive in a way that is pretty significant. So when I was in my 20s, if you had told me that, for instance, in a custody dispute, that a woman would lie about a man sexually abusing the kids, for instance, purely for the sake of gaining custody, I would have said that's a completely misogynist thing to think. Mm -hmm. um, how dare you? That never happens. You you hate women. Okay. But having lived, you know, a couple decades since I thought that, I've seen that happen. Yeah. I've seen people I know do that. Not a lot. Not my best friends, but I know what happens. And I think that my 22-year-old self would have been absolutely unable to conceive of that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great example. I think it's a great example. I mean, you know, and I think they're like, so I hear that now and I hear what you're saying and I, and I don't, and so where my head goes is just, yeah, what do you do about that? Like, what do you do about, you know, and you could argue, I can imagine sort of going down that road and people arguing about, well, but the fraction is really small and of women who do that or whatever. We don't really know probably what the numbers are. We know it's not 90% of women, it's not zero. And so, but we don't know, like, again, it's sort of the, we don't really know. And how do you want to proceed given that? Like, do you want to create a policy or sort of proceed with discourse in conversation? Discourse, it feels so like such a stuffy word, but just in terms of how know, we talk to that. each it's, other. Yeah. Right. Like, it sounds like pull the stick out of your butt, but you know, like how, how do you want to talk to each other? Do you want to always assume that, you know, it is, this never happens because that's not a, that's not a defensible claim, right? Like that's, and that the other thing about certainty, and this is a whole another problem with it is that it really does erode trust, right? It just is, it's corrosive on when it comes to public trust, when it comes to trust between how people interact right? Like it's because all it takes is you, this is why, I mean, I, I'm sure I'm not perfect at it, but I try to be very careful and precise with words. Um, so when I said judgment always comes from certainty, I don't use the word always lightly, but sort of overstating claims over, right? Like it just, and then, then it comes out that you, well, it wasn't actually what you said it was, or, you know, and particularly on these kinds of issues. And then there's, sorry, just one other thing while I'm thinking about this, like, 
So there's the whole trust piece. And then there's also a piece that is very tied to language, right? Like how do we, what do we, what are these words? And I know I'm not the only person to sort of point this out, but what are, are we even talking about the same thing with particularly think about this and with all the, you know, whether you're talking about racism or sexism or ableism or transphobia, which I guess really isn't an ism, but right. All of these words, what do we mean? How do we know if something falls into these categories? Who should decide? What kind of assumptions are we making? Are those reasonable assumptions? Are they not? What are the what are the sort of downstream effects of those assumptions? We don't talk about any of that stuff. Well, because it doesn't pay. Right. The problem is, is that every the incentive structure for saying I don't know is such that there's no incentive to say I don't know. So I guess what I was starting to say before is that because, I mean, one of the things that's happening is because so much of the discourse is guided by people who tend to be younger, those people on balance are going to be more certain of their opinions than older people because they haven't had the life experience to have those opinions tested. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And then there's just the fact that if you are, say, a journalist or an opinion writer, if all of your opinion columns are saying, I don't know, you're not going to be a very successful opinion columnist. I can tell you that by experience. Yeah. And so it's really hard because you're a squish. You're either, you're a squish at best, right? If if anything you're you just become sort of irrelevant. If you are saying if you're constantly saying, well, it's a little bit of this, it's a little bit of that, I don't know. That's very hard to sort of package in a way that the public can even metabolize. Yeah, I like the word metabolize there. Yeah, I think that makes sense. There's an organization, uh, the Center for Humane Technology, that what works on what I think of as the supply side of this problem, which is sort of how do we reshape, and I have just a loose understanding of what they do, but sort of how do we reshape the algorithms and the way people are fed information on different social media platforms? And so, and I think about, if I can be so bold, sort of what I'm trying to do is work on the demand side, sort of how do we change the way we're metabolizing? Yeah, the journalists are going to do what the journalists are going to do and and whatever, like, and that's still going to happen. And those incentives are in place. And I don't, I'm not sure what the vision would be if there's some way to shift that, but you can change. I do think that you can change the way people take in that information. And so that's, you know, I would have to, I would need to scale it up a lot, but like, that's sort of the supply side that I'm interested in and that I'm focused on. So I guess it's in some ways just coming at it from a different angle, if that makes sense. We're going to pause here for a brief message. The Unspeakable with Megan Daum is sponsored by BetterHelp. We talk a lot on this podcast about things like life choices and being guided by honesty of thought, but it's often not that simple. I've been candid here about my own struggles, and I'd be the first to agree that life does not come with a user's manual, but BetterHelp Online Therapy can be the next best thing. No matter what kind of challenge you're navigating, a career change, starting a new relationship, or becoming a parent, BetterHelp's therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. That makes therapy the closest thing to a guided tour of the complex engine called you. Now, I've done plenty of therapy myself. Of course I have. I've lived in New York City and I've gotten a lot out of it, but it's expensive. It can be difficult to schedule. And sometimes you have to go through a lot of different therapists to find the right one. 
BetterHelp makes all of that easier. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. There's no waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash unspeakable. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash unspeakable. And now back to the conversation. So what I want to do here is a little experiment where you walk me through thinking about something that I am probably the most certain about. Mm -hmm. This will come as no surprise to my listeners. So we talk a lot about the gender identity stuff on this podcast. It's become more and more top of mind. I kind of wish it wasn't, but let me just say the part of this that I'm really certain about. So I I will be the first to tell you uh, when it comes to this issue of gender youth medicine, I do think that there are some kids who are trans. I think it must be extremely, extremely difficult if you're if you are a parent to know how to handle that. I think that adults who are identify as transgender should be able to do whatever they want. I think possibly there's a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of cases where there's a child who is identified as the opposite sex very, very early. You know, they say early and consistent and persistent. And maybe there's a case for medicalizing that kid, maybe. But one thing I am certain of is that there is this phenomenon, rapid onset gender dysphoria. It was coined by Lisa Lippman. Mm-hmm. It was popularized by Abigail Schreier. There's this subset uh, coming in, identifying as transgender that never had dysphoria before, often girls, increasingly boys. It is a social contagion. I am completely certain that this is something that is happening and that most, if not all, of that particular cohort is not transgender. Mm-hmm. So tell me why I might be wrong to be so certain about this. So, so, okay. So one thing that I wanted, yeah, actually I'm familiar with the, I think I talked to Lisa Littman once on the phone. Um, It was a couple of years ago, but so one thing I want to point out is that, so the idea of the certainty trap, there are all kinds of things. And Megan, you would know if you fall into this category or not, but so there are all kinds of things that we treat as certain that I wouldn't consider they don't, they're sort of not falling into the category of the trap part. So like, I'm certain that I'm sitting here at my kitchen table and talking to you on this podcast. And I am, yes, there is some chance that someone put, you know, a high dose of LSD in my oatmeal and this is all some elaborate hallucination. <laughs> I, you know, well, I'm try being a podcaster. That is what it feels like every, yeah. every day. Yeah. So like, but I'm, you know, so I'm treating it as certain. It doesn't really matter. Like I'm holding my phone and I can say, I'm pretty certain that's a phone, right? It doesn't, so there, that doesn't, there aren't really any, the trap part is about the demonization and the judgment that we, that we, that sort of reflexive demonization and judgment of somebody who disagrees. So I guess that's, so that's the first kind of distinction that I would say. Well, I'm starting to have that. Okay. Well, so there you go. So when it comes to this subject. Yeah. Okay. So I guess, so I think that's, that's, so then, so then it does fit. I mean, because, so the idea would be that not all certainty 
I mean, we could talk about sort of all certainty in general, but like not all certainty, there's not a trap component of all of it, of all of it. So I guess what I would say is, you know, and I'm not an expert, I'm not an expert on this, but what I would imagine is, you know, cause I've certainly talked to students about this example. Um, and I've talked to them about Lisa Littman's work in particular. And I know, yeah, I know I've had conversations with classes about this. So what students will say is their concern is that, yeah, but how do you know the person who, the rapid onset gender dysphoria, for example, how do you know if that person who never had any symptoms, didn't have, didn't exhibit them, you know, the persistent, consistent, whatever, maybe they felt those, I'm, I'm just channeling an argument here, right? Maybe they felt those things mm -hmm, for, mm -hmm. for years and they didn't say it, right? Like they didn't, so how do you know? And like, on the one hand, you could say, well, of course it makes sense that there are contagion effects, right? Like, because, you know, we think about, you know, girls and eating disorders and there are contagion effects there, you know, there's sort of lots of evidence that there are contagion effects there. So why wouldn't there be this sort of peer effect of, gender dysphoria. But I guess the question would be sort of, how do you know, given that you can't observe someone and someone would say, right, they would say, well, the risk of, you know, suicide is higher and depression. And so how do you, if you're assuming that this person, that if they were sort of quote, truly gender dysphoric, they would have exhibited symptoms later on. Is that mm -hmm. true? Mm -hmm. I have no idea. Maybe. Is it true all of the time? Is it true some of the time? Right. I don't know. Like, what if you get it wrong? I, you know, and I mean, I think I just think there's so many questions there about what we know about gender. And I don't I mean, God, thank God I don't have to produce the answers to these questions. Like, I can just ask the questions. You know, what do we know about gender and biology? And what do we know? I mean, given, you know, I think that given the costs, you know, from and, you know, I have three kids. And so I certainly not in, totally blind to these issues. Like, and these concerns, like if what the costs of sort of, you know, in an extreme case, yeah, sort of, and I heard some of your episode with Colin Wright about sort of the surgical transformations, the sort of full on transformations for sometimes yeah. kids who are under 18. Right. So that, I mean, I think that that's a, right. Like, how do you justify that? Like, so there is, so you're saying these people are, if your judgment comes into play, then you're saying these are horrible people. Like there's a difference. No, I'm not saying the people, I'm not saying that dysphoric people are no, horrible. No, no. I'm I, saying that the, the, the active, the very extreme activists who refuse to acknowledge any gray area are horrible people. Yes. I yeah. So that, I, guess, I guess, yeah. I mean, yeah. I guess I would want to know what are they saying? So part of, okay. So remember when I, so in the main part of the podcast, remember one of the things I said is I was like, you know, of course there could be people out there who are truly I think the example that we were talking about, truly driven by misogyny, or, you know, in another example, you could imagine truly driven by racism. So you could imagine that there are people that are, so first of all, there's nothing that is, uh, that I'm saying that's inconsistent with the idea that there could be people who are just, I don't know what they would make them, that would make them what they truly, they hate, they want to, I mean, really, like, would that mean they want to hurt children? Oh, people who are tra who are actually tran transphobic, or oh wait, oh the other well, way like, around, or like the, the the activists, that, like, so the activists. What would be the sort of insidious motive that they would have, like the activists? I don't think they are, have an insidious motive. I think that they have mental health issues, and it's being channeled into this for the okay. most part. I mean, I mean, maybe I'm being too charitable. There might be a few of them who are actually just terrible people who want to make trouble. Yeah, but okay, but you're saying that they have mental health issues. So I, you know, I don't know, to me, that doesn't sound, that sounds like a question like that to, to me, what you're describing sounds like 
like a question, like, I'm not sure how anyone could, like, how could this be, how could the potential costs of this be justified? Um, how could you, how, I mean, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but that seems like the question. So for the extreme activist or whatever, how could you, th that person, um, justify this kind of medical intervention, given the risks, given that it's irreversible, given that, given that it likely leads to infertility, given that, you know, I learned on your, the show with Colin Wright that, you know, that it, they have to have a, a hysterectomy, um, if they're trans yeah. man, trans, trans male, man, trans right, man. If they're biological, female, yeah, biological female. So, yeah. I mean, I think that, I do think that it's the question of, how do you think about the people who disagree? So you're saying, if you're saying you think what they're doing is, you think that they have mental, sort of untreated mental illness and that it's manifesting this way. I mean, it's a whole bunch of things. Yeah, okay, I mean, I'm not going to say, I'm not saying they're all mentally ill, but I'm saying that there's a whole bunch of, it's multifactorial. Right. But the people who, the people who would say, that there's no such thing as ROGD and everybody who's identifying as trans is trans and we just, there are more of them than we thought and we just haven't recognized it. I believe those people are categorically wrong. There yeah. is no way that the amount of people who are identifying as trans are actually trans. There, I, I am certain that that is the case. So there you go. Yeah, I'm just trying to, I'm just, no, I appreciate the example. I'm just trying to think about what the difference is because I think there's an asymmetry there in. Because I think that you're, I'm still not convinced that what you're describing is the, like, so if I think about the, if I'm describing the certainty trap and I'm saying this is actually the problem of demonization and judgment, at some level, what the scenario that, that you just described, that's what that other, the, what you, the person that you described, that's what they're doing. They're saying that, that every person, like, if I want to make the claim, every right. person who well, claims they're that they're really trans, certain. Yes. Yeah. So, well, not only because they're certain, but because they're saying that if you disagree, you're transphobic, that's, that's the piece, mm -hmm. right? It's not just that they're certain in whatever it is that they're, that they're believing. It's that, it's that you, the only reason that you would disagree with me is if you're an idiot or if you're transphobic, that's, that's the trap piece. And I guess I'm not hearing that's the asymmetry that it sounds like I'm hearing from you. So there's a difference between, again, there's this difference between being certain and being, and you could actually, one of the things, so in the, in the book that I'm trying to hopefully we'll find a publisher for, like one of the things, I guess one question for you, Megan would be like, could you imagine switching your language from certainty to confidence? Right. So when you think about the trans issues and you think about like, could you attach a level of confidence to your belief and get away from the word certain? Um, okay. That's a good question. Uh, yeah, I could. Like, I so could. what would you put the number at? Like a zero to a hundred or a hundred is certain and zero is never that I could, that I could do this or that I could say no, confident or that I, that the number of people, I think that 90% of the teenagers that are suddenly identifying as trans are not trans are, are I mean right yeah are, are, right I that and that would be low I think it's more like 99.9 .9, but okay I'll I'm Even confident 90, that it is right. at least but 90. now you're in the world of confidence and not certainty like you already have stepped out of it 
right? Because if oh. you're right, like that's, that is, that is talk about categorical differences. That is a categorical difference. Once you're on the sort of scale of confidence, you can have all kinds of discussions about, well, how confident should we be? And then how, you know, you could build a confidence interval around it. How confident should I be in my confidence level? Like, you know, you could go out. But then this will drive you crazy. Okay. But yeah, okay. Now, might. how do you go through the world? Not, there's a certain kind of suspension of disbelief that you have to have just to walk through the world and live your life all the time. Yeah. I mean, well, so, I don't think that we should all move through the world wondering if somebody put LSD in our oatmeal. Like, I mean, I think, but I think that when it comes to, that's why I'm sort of, it does the certainty trap and thinking about certainty, it does. Like I've had students say, well, I had a student, I guess it was last year and she was like, well, where does it end? And I was like, it doesn't really end. Um, you know, know. she was like, and she put her head on the desk, like, you know, but it doesn't mean, so leaning into uncertainty and recognizing uncertainty, first of all, it doesn't mean that just anything goes. It doesn't mean that we stop teaching evolution in schools. It doesn't mean there's nothing about moving from certainty to confidence that says that any explanation has an equal probability of being true right? There's just nothing about this. That's, it doesn't say that there aren't bad people in the world. It doesn't say that there aren't hateful people in the world. It's just saying, what do we know and what do we not know? And I think that when it comes to contentious issues, yeah, you're right. We can't move through the world like constantly questioning everything and saying, oh, you know, I'm holding this thing that is, you know, it's glass, it's open on the top, it's closed on the bottom. I think I can put water in it, but I'm not sure. Like, But even, okay, but even with all, with, with these issues, like, is it, I mean, you can move through the world and say, well, climate change is caused by humans. Meh, probably, but maybe not. Okay, next thing. Uh, the election was stolen. No, probably not, almost certainly not, but maybe it was. Like, isn't that kind of a recipe for making yourself crazy? No, because you don't have, well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, am I crazy? Maybe. I mean, like, I think you don't have to, you can still hold on to all of your opinions. You can hold on to everything that you thought before. And it's sort of making that, I had an email exchange with once with Carla Ravelli, who's a physicist, a theoretical physicist, who's worked, uh, written a couple of great books. Um, and so, but one of the things that he said in this email exchange about certainty he called it a microspace of doubt. And he said that you're holding, you're holding basically a microspace of doubt that most of the time, in most of our interactions, we sort of pretend it's not there. But it is always there. And if what we care about is sort of both an accurate reflection of the world and how we communicate with each other to reduce all the things I said before, reducing political polarization, sort of building stronger relationships, stronger communities, all of these things. If you care about that, you don't really get to choose. And now the one thing, the last thing I'll say, like, or before, if, I don't know if you have another question, but there are always issues that people just can't take off. They just can't say, I, you know, I'm not going to, not on this, this, this thing over here. I just, I don't want to engage on it. Like, you know, say for example, I don't want to talk to my Holocaust denier neighbor. Like, it's just too much. Like, that's just too out there. Like, I'm not going there. That's fine. Like, I can do that. And I can take, I can just say, you know what, this thing over here, I'm, I'm going to take that off the table. But it's sort of like, there is, we do have, I would argue, an, an, a, a duty to ourselves and to each other to think it, to scale that up. It's almost like recycling. Like, if I have a piece of paper on the table and I throw it in the trash instead of the recycling, like, the world's probably not going to end because I put that piece of paper in the garbage instead of the recycling. But if you scale that up and everybody is doing it about everything, 
right? Then you have, then you're talking about a sort of different set of circumstances. So if every, the longer our list gets of things that we will take off the table and the more people that are saying, no, this idea is exempt from criticism. You can't examine that idea. You can't question this thing, the worse off we are. And so I get that at an individual level, we, there are certain things that we might just feel like we can't, it's just too much. And I, I totally get that. And yet at, at, a, at, at scale, it's incompatible with also saying, well, we want to reduce, we want to you know, build stronger communities, strong relationships, more public trust, lower political polarization. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking like, so a few weeks ago, I had Michael Shermer on the podcast. Oh, cool. He was talking about conspiracy theories. So he has a new book out about conspiracy theories. And obviously there's there's nobody more certain. There's no one more stuck in the certainty trap than conspiracy theories. Yes. Is that fair to say? I think, you know, it's funny. I've spent like a, a fair amount of time thinking about conspiracy theories. And, and I think that what it, and I'm not sure if I would use the, I haven't yet figured out if I think that the word always applies here. So conspiracy theories, and again, I'm not going to say always because I'm not sure yet, but they seem to very frequently, if you follow the thread back, they seem to come back to a question of public trust. And do you trust in whatever information is coming down from sort of the, the state or the you know legacy media or whatever it is? Like, do you trust it? Do you? And so that, and I do think, so in that sense, I think that certainty, particularly when it comes from our institutions, whether it's the government, whether it's our school system, whether it's higher education, whether it's the media, I think is particularly corrosive because of its because of its effect. I mean, it has multiple effects, but one of the effects is on public trust. And that public trust, I do think, has direct implications. Why that's that's sort of where you follow the thread back, or one of the threads that you follow back when you think about, well, where do conspiracies theories come from? Like the amount of people that you have to think are literally conspiring to sort of make this, you know, whatever this thing happen. It does come back to public trust. And so again, now you're back in questions like, well, what is the right balance of people who in a given society, like, how do you want to think about like, how should you want people to default to suspicion? Sometimes you don't want people to be just whatever they call it, sheeple or something. So that, yeah, well, there's a fine line between suspicion and critical thinking. Right. Yeah. And that, so how, and you want people to, you want some people to default to trust and some people to default to suspicion. And what should that look like? Is it 50, 50? And how do you decide? And I mean, you know, for God's sakes, like, why aren't we talking about these things? I don't have answers, but like, there is a conversation to be had there. And there is a direct line between public trust and conspiracy theories. And there's a, and if you go one step further back, there's a line from certainty, institutional certainty, to the decay of public trust. Yeah, I'm thinking about the lab leak hypothesis, yeah. for instance. There you go. So that was something that was allowed to be discussed for about three weeks yeah. after the pandemic really got underway. And then suddenly it was completely shut down as a topic. It was unacceptable. Because you were xenophobic, right? Right. You were xenophobic. Um, you were anti-science, et cetera, et cetera. And the fact, it, well, I shouldn't say the fact is, my understanding is that there has never been any there's never been any direct link to natural spillover uh, so far. Yeah. And it would, I, so, okay, here's another thing I'm pretty certain about. Yeah. Maybe slightly less so than my trans theory. I do think it, the coronavirus was from a lab. I think it's a lab. I think it was a lab leak. I don't think it was intentional. Mm -hmm. I think it was an accident, mm -hmm. but again, I would say, are you highly confident or are you certain? Uh, I don't know that I'm even highly confident, okay. but I'm, 
I'm highly suspicious. Is that an oxymoron? No, I don't. Not to me. It doesn't sound like an oxymoron to me. It sounds perfectly reasonable. Um, I don't know if I'm a good judge of these things, but no, it sounds reasonable to me. I, you know, there's nothing that you're saying that sounds in in these examples anyway that sounds like anything other. It sounds like you're talking about confidence. Um, and again, I do think there's a huge difference in how we talk to each other. And again, so and going back to the institutional piece, that shift from certainty to confidence is subtle but enormously important. And your and this goes back to kind of what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast about the incentives, you know. And there are competing incentives. Like even if you if you could look at the COVID example, like I mean, you're talking about the lab leak hypothesis, but even whatever messaging about COVID. What do you do in situations if you're a public health official and you want to message about something and you know that people are going to respond, people like simple messages and they don't really listen to sort of a complex. Well, they can't be trusted. Yeah, they can't. Public health officials do not trust people to to make decisions, understand complicated messages or gray areas. So how do you what do you do? Like, do you err on the side of do you actually present you know, the accurate reflection of what you know, the accurate state of knowledge about what you know and what you don't know. I mean, there's a real, like, people talk about intellectual humility, but it's it's so much deeper than that. Because again, like critical, sort of like critical thinking, which is why I hate that word too. Nobody thinks that they're not doing critical thinking. Nobody thinks that they're not thinking critically. <laughs> like, it just doesn't mean anything. Like, nobody thinks that they're intellectually, what would be the opposite of humble? Like, intellectually omniscient, you know, or what, like no one thinks that they are. Infallible. Well, some people probably think they are, but those are sociopaths. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Okay. So most people. And so, you know, I don't think it's, it's something much deeper than that. It's, it's about, it's, it's really sort of internalizing this idea that we can name our values and principles and beliefs, and they are all our ideas about anything don't belong up on a shelf somewhere or in a museum saying like, no, this thing over here can't be, we can't kick the tires on that thing. Like all of it. And there really isn't anywhere. As far as I can tell, there is nowhere to draw the line once you, once you, once you sort of internalize that. Um, and again, that doesn't mean that anything, any explanation has an equal probability of being true. It's nothing about saying oh, any opinion is as good as any other, because actually what I'm saying has nothing to say about is silent on moral absolutes or moral relativism. I'm not making a claim about anything. I'm saying we can name things and have a conversation about them and examine them and question them without anyone letting them go necessarily and without making a normative assessment about them. Um, and that's hard for people to do, but it is doable. So what does intellectual humility mean to you, if anything? Um, I mean, I think it's easy to be intellectual. So they have these scales, like, because one of the things that I've tried to figure out is how to measure, you know, certainty and uncertainty. And there are these things of these intellectual humility scales. In fact, there's a tolerance for uncertainty scale, which I thought was so interesting that I took it. So I took, I gave, I administered the scale to myself, this tolerance for uncertainty. And it turns out, and you'll appreciate this, I apparently have a very low tolerance for uncertainty in my own life. Like in my, and so what it was, was like, so what the score came back was that I have a very low tolerance for uncertainty, but what it was measuring was sort of how do you 
like, do you like to have a plan? Do you like to know kind of your next steps in your, right? Like it was about your personal life. And I think that's right. I think I probably do personally, I have a low tolerance for uncertainty. In these kinds of topics and how we think about the world, like it's absolutely not, right? So like my point is just that like, there's no way I could use that kind of scale. So going back to the intellectual humility question, if you're thinking about things that you're intellectually humble about, it's like you're almost always already going to be missing. It's the things that you're not even, that you're taking so for granted that you don't even think about that are the hardest to think about. Right. So once you get to the place of thinking about your thinking, then you're already over the threshold. Right. It's only in recognizing that literally everything has to be on the table to be questioned and examined that you can start to sort of push at that a little bit and even sort of think about, well, what are the assumptions that I'm making? And what are the things that I'm, you know, concluding and without even realizing it? Because yeah, just like what you said, like by the time you're at the point where you're saying, well, I, you know, I think I might be wrong about this. Okay. You're already, now you're already off the certainty trap train. Now you're in the world of confidence, right? Like, and so it's the things that we don't even, and so that's counterintuitive for people. Yeah. Yeah. I like this. Yeah. Be less certain, more confident. Yeah. Hold, yeah, that's good. Confidence. You can work with confidence. You can have a conversation with people about confidence and confidence about your confidence and whatever. Like, I mean, that's a conversation. Certainty is certainty. The other thing about certainty, it's not just that it's hard to have a conversation. And this is, this is a probably a separate conversation. Like it's actually wrong in some way. This is where people say, oh, you're certain about your certainty about your certainty trap or whatever. But I mean, there isn't, this is again, going back to my interaction with Carlo Rovelli, like somewhere between he, what it's what he said. He said somewhere between, I have to get the quote, somewhere between certainty and chaos, that's where human beings do their business. Right. And so it's, it, we can't, things, the world doesn't become certain just because we assert that it is. It doesn't work that way. My mother might have had something to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Alana, this is fascinating. Thank you so much. Oh, I really you. like the idea. I really like this. I'm going to, I'd like, I'm going to take this away for, I'm going to take this with me for a long time. The idea of being confident rather than certain. Yeah. And then I really like you can that. even attach numbers to it. Like how confident would you be? How confident are you in that particular mm -hmm. claim or assertion or whatever? And that's a world of difference from certainty. Okay. Even if it's 99.9%, .9%, it's still different. All right. Good point. Alana Redstone, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. That was my conversation with Alana Redstone. She is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and has been teaching and writing on topics related to critical thinking for many years. She's also the faculty director and a co-founder of the Mill Institute and the co-author of Unassailable Ideas, How Unwritten Rules and Social Media Shape Discourse in American Higher Education. You've been listening to The Unspeakable Podcast, if you would like to support the podcast, please become a paid subscriber to my Substack page. That is megandaum.substack.com. There are lots of reasons to join there. You can get early access to this podcast, early ad-free access. What else? You can uh, be able to participate in the comments. If you join at the founding member level, you get to come to our monthly Zoom hangouts. Those are a lot of fun. 
I've also been doing more writing on that Substack page, posting new essays, never before read brand new essays. And those are generally available to paying subscribers only. So please consider supporting the page if you haven't already. You can also just leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, as long as it's positive. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Thank you.